Welcome to After Action, I'm Chad Hammer. In addition to our domestic and international protective mission, diplomatic security investigates a wide range of cross-border crimes. The case you'll hear about today is anything but a fairy tale. We're here to speak with Chris Swenson, a 20-year law enforcement veteran, about one of his biggest cases out of the New York field office. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Chad. It's great to be here. What are we going to talk about today, Chris? We're going to talk about a case uh, named Operation Cinderella Story, a fairly massive case that involved uh, multinational search warrants, over 200 agents, and about 24 arrests for a variety of crimes. It's incredible, Chris. Let's get started. Tell us a little bit how this case got started. I was originally assigned to the DS New York field office, one of the largest field offices in DS, uh, when I came out of DS basic training in 2014. As is usually the case when you're assigned to a field office, you're given you know a caseload that can consist of new cases hot off the press, but it can also consist of cases that get transferred to you by virtue of other agents transferring out of the office. So you were given a cold case to start with, or? My partner in this case, Justin Ellard, was in my BSAC class. We landed in New York at the same time, and the case was actually originally assigned to Justin as kind of the welcome cases, we'll say. Okay, Chris, so you were given this case, and what, what did you see at first? What, how did the case open? The case opened originally with the case agents that were originally assigned when a Korean national, a female, was denied entry to the United States on her U.S. visa that was issued in Seoul, South Korea, upon suspicion of her engaging in the sex trade. She was turned around, so to speak, which means sent back to her place of origin in Korea. And at that point, DS agents on the ground interviewed her and learned that she was to have entered the United States fraudulently and work for an individual in the sex trade in the New York City area. So the Customs and Border Protection officers were able to figure out just from their questionnaire that she was not here for the reason she said she was going to be here? That's right. It's interesting to note that visas don't guarantee admission to the United States. They only guarantee the opportunity to apply for admission. And if a CBP officer, based on the totality of circumstances, believes that there might be fraud involved, they can simply deny entry with or without a visa. So through your interview of her, we were able to get information leading to an email account. Is that right? That's right. The agents in Seoul, South Korea, posted at the embassy, they interviewed her, obtained specific information about a, a unique email account she was corresponding with. They then packaged that information, sent it back to the original case agents in New York, and they did a pretty good job on it. They got a search warrant for the email account. They did all the right things, but there was a certain electronic communications provider that was reticent to provide the info that the warrant demanded. They said that the legal document was facially insufficient, and I think that took the wind out of the sails of the investigation at that time. It went somewhat cold until my partner, Justin Ellard, and I came to the New York field office and got the case. So you two worked to effectively rewrite or reserve the warrant? That's right. We worked with some new AUSAs, which are assistant United States attorneys, they're federal prosecutors, to kind of reorganize and repackage the warrant with some additional facts It was signed, uh, just as it was signed in in the first place, but then this electronic communications provider actually provided the data. What did you guys find in the email account? We found a litany of correspondence and communications between this individual who was living on Long Island and foreign nationals, specifically Korean women, that were seeking to come in to work for this individual at a Manhattan brothel. And in it, we found a multitude of identifying information, such as passport uh, numbers, 
photos, other email accounts, phone numbers, et cetera. And so we, we knew we really had something to work with once we found that stuff. So at your first glance, these women are, are victims or they're conspirators. How, does, how do you approach this case? We call balls and strikes when we do an investigation. We're open to any possibility. At that point, it was unknown. And it, we, what we really needed was someone from this group of women who were either had come over or had expressed interest in coming over to really give us the lay of the land. These cases are always made through human sources, and that's what we endeavored to find. To answer your question, it was TBD at that time. And you were able to find one of those sources? We identified a woman who worked under the name Jasmine, a Korean national who had overstayed her visa and was living in the Flushing area of Queens, which is a predominantly Korean populated area where we were able to pin her down to an address. And using the phone number, we were able to uh, track her to a specific apartment. And that was the first big step in this case. So how did that interview go? It went great. We utilized HSI, Homeland Security Investigations, to exercise their immigration authority to detain her, not with the intent of necessarily deporting her or taking any other action in that realm, but really just to give us the legal basis through which to, to bring her to an offsite office and commence an interview with her. And we did interview her, and it, she told us some things that we didn't know. For example, the individual who was responsible for curating that email account had since gone out of business. Okay. He was, in fact, bringing the women in. He did have a business, but something very tragic happened. Uh, one of the girls uh, that was working for him in one of these midtown brothels committed suicide, and it kind of spooked him out of the business. So what did you guys do next? What was the next step? Well, what we did was we ended up really cooperating with Jasmine. Jasmine ended up being so cooperative with us because we were we were very, I guess, circumspect in how we dealt with her. We didn't know if she was a victim. We didn't know if she was involved in this business principally or anything like that. But what we tried to do was build a rapport and, and have a, a safe consolatory space for her to, to be honest with us. And it really paid off. She really understood that we were trying to get our arms around this thing. And she referred us to a friend of hers currently engaged in managing a brothel, the phones and the logistics and such that was currently operating in Midtown. Okay, you kind of went one degree removed from Jasmine and got to the second source. How did that go? It went great. We were agonizing over how to approach her because we realized this was probably going to be the most important facet of what happens next in this case. Yeah, this is somebody kind of behind the scenes at the business side, right? That's right. Yeah. The information we had was that she was running logistical operations for a brothel located on West 46th Street in Manhattan, answering the phone. She wasn't working as a sex worker, so and she had expressed interest to Jasmine about getting out of the business. That was the perfect foothold we needed to go talk to her. And what we did, we wanted to get her out of her apartment in Flushing into a space, but she was a US citizen. We had no authority to do so. Right. So we engaged in a ruse with her. We okay. called her and told her that there was an individual engaging in financial fraud using a passport with her data on it. That sufficiently worried her to be able to come see us the same day or the next day. It was very, very soon. And we sat down with her. And after she confirmed her email account and information that was relevant to us, we pitched her and we said, we'd like your help. And she said, I will tell you whatever you want to know, no problem. And she sure, wow. sure did. 
So what did you get from her? What was the next move? So what she described was kind of a, an affiliation of multiple brothels in and around the Manhattan area. She described these brothels as existing really only on the internet. And I really want to underscore that in that there was not this fig leaf of legitimacy as if it were a massage parlor or something like that, that appeared to be a quasi legitimate business. What she described was a network of brothels who collaborated together and existed on the internet only in the form of the girls that were working there and a phone number. And what we wow. found out was these brothels were located in disparate locations in residential areas in Manhattan in apartments, and you would never know they were operating out of there, but for her telling us. She went on to describe that they had a list of approved customers, that okay. they would vet individuals to prevent robbers or law enforcement or anything from penetrating this network. And so she wow. gave us the lay of the land, and she was able to specifically tell us she was in one of these locations, the 46th Street location, as recently as the day before we spoke with her. So the information was super fresh and very credible. For those of us not familiar with New York, this area is a, is a rough area or this is a nice place. Where are these, these brothels located? Almost exclusively in very nice, expensive neighborhoods. By design, we found they were meant to attract higher end clientele with money. The investigation revealed some of these places were charging two to $400 an hour to engage in these activities with these women. And they were almost exclusively located in, in very nice thousands of dollars a month buildings. So you had a location and you had a pretty good deal, a pretty good idea of what was going on inside. What was your next step in planning, planning the investigation? We knew we had actionable intelligence, as they say. So we met with our uh, Southern District of New York partners, and we kind of conceptualized an operation that we hadn't really done before, uh, the New York field office, to my knowledge. I have a pretty solid background in computer forensics and cybercrime. So mm -hmm. what we kind of pitched to the Southern District of New York, SDNY attorneys, was that we endeavored to do a sealed delayed notice search warrant. Now, what is that? A sealed delayed notice search warrant is different from a regular search warrant in that in a regular search warrant, you actually have to let people know that you executed this warrant. You have to leave them paperwork and it's very covert, as we say. Well, what we kind of conceptualized was the covert imaging or basically obtaining all of the data on these computers, phones and other devices that might be present inside this location surreptitiously. So we would image these things and nobody would know until later on when the notice was unsealed. So we put nice. together a plan with NYPD because nobody scares criminal organizations like when they hear the federal agents are involved in a case. Uh, it really spooks people. But sometimes places get hit by local PD and vice squads, so on and so forth. So we enlisted the help of uh, Detective uh, Adrian Campos from NYPD Vice mm. and myself, Justin, and a couple other agents played NYPD for the day. And we wore NYPD raid jackets armed with a search warrant that they didn't know was a federal search warrant. And we executed uh, within that week. Wow. So this all happened pretty fast. So this was during operating hours. You guys were there. You found women working. You found clients. What did you find? We found who we later knew to be the manager of the place and one girl working there. And it was inconsistent with what we expected because we intentionally hit the place during business hours. So we would have the opportunity to interview as many girls as we could. But what a very sharp-eyed agent saw was that their window was open in this premise and there was a fire escape and some rooftops. 
And this agent spotted a couple who appeared to be Korean females out on the rooftop, kind of trying to hide themselves. So kind of something out of a movie. Yeah. The individuals did the rooftop thing, the rooftop scene that we all see, climbed the fire escape and actually did find out that there were, I think there were three or four girls who were terrified. So we brought them in, explained to them what was going on. We, you know, we told them nobody was being arrested. We're just following up on a complaint. And that kind of brought the temperature down a bit. Okay, so you drew out these interviews while somebody was kind of working the technical side. That's exactly right. So we had NYPD Vice kind of go through a bunch of questions, interview, pedigree questions, so on and so forth in a room where the rest of the premise wouldn't be visible to them. So what we did was we hooked up every piece of forensic equipment that the New York field office had, imaged laptops, cell phones, tablets in such a way that we would have access to the data later. And we put everything back exactly the way we found it because we took pictures before. It was very important for them to believe we never touched this stuff. So we were comparing the pictures with actually what it looked like. And we were able to successfully image all of the equipment, including a very important computer that held a critical piece of information. Is this the list you mentioned earlier? That is the list. So the list looked nothing like we expected it to. The list was contained in Microsoft Outlook format, like a VCF with contact cards, and the list was voluminous. We expected there to be maybe a couple hundred clients on the list. Well, there was over 70,000 contacts on this list from basically wow. every area code you can think of in the country. But what we found out is we decoded some of the text that was on the list, and we found out that not only was there a phone number that corresponded to a vetted customer, there was description of the customer's appearance, and they actually had the first name, in many cases, of the customer. So that ended up being critical for us. But you didn't interview 70,000 customers. How did you, how did you move next? It would have been the classic case of biting off more than you can chew, and it would have taken sure. years. So what we did is Justin Ellard and I and our postal inspector partner, Jack Galvin, in, on this case, we ended up leveraging basically whole of government resources in an attempt to identify the clients who would be most helpful to the investigation. After converting the files to Excel, we ended up narrowing down the area codes to only the local New York and New Jersey area codes, 212, 914, uh, 718, so on and so forth. So then what we did is when I say whole of government, we used pretty much every database you can think of to then further identify who these individuals were. The problem was when we had names on the list like Mike or Tony or John, it was too common of a name to really have a high degree of confidence. It was, in fact, the same person. And our priority was really just making the highest hit rate we could. So what we right. did is we took names that kind of were you don't see all the time, like Jacob or Henry or something like that. And then we open sourced them through social media, through all kinds of records. We married up the names and the phone numbers to the general description of their appearance. And then we looked at individuals who we suspected would be susceptible to the highest degree of leveraging cooperation, business owners, military, any affiliation with law enforcement, certainly married individuals with children were high on our list. So we would approach these individuals and say, hey, we want to talk to you. We want to talk to you. We'd, we'd kind of call them away from their family or wife if they were present at the time. And we'd say, listen, dude, we know what you're doing. We know you've been to these places in Midtown. We're sure of it. And we want your cooperation and we want it right now. And it eliminated any issues with these folks being criminal subjects because that, that would be coercive in the criminal context. You know, any statements they make, it would be problematic. They right. weren't criminal subjects. 
and basically we wanted to get the information. And if anybody was reticent to provide the information, we said, well, maybe your wife might have more information on this, or maybe your job might have more information. I don't know. I, we just are going to ask other people for information, or you can just give it to us. And it was a highly successful tactic. So what did you get from them over how much time, how many people you interviewed? Um, what was the picture? How was it developing? So it was it was developing rapidly. I can tell you in some facets of this case, it felt like we were running downhill and we just had to keep running because we were learning new things every day. So what we learned was through, in some cases, driving around with these clients, we learned exactly where some of these places existed. Like I said, other nondescript buildings, we were able to have individuals tell us, yes, we engaged in sexual conduct here for money. We were able to get reviews online that they were able to point us to saying, okay, well, individual one then referred us to a website that had erotic style reviews on them. So we were really able to, to marshal the information in a way where it clearly formed a network. So you were seeing more than one website, right, tied to this organization. You were seeing these review sites, but also the hosting sites. And that became part of the investigation as well, right? It did. So I like to use an analogy. I'm a big baseball fan. Uh, unfortunately, I'm a Mets fan, so life is hard sometimes. We looked at these brothels in a way like baseball teams are organized under like the National League or the American League, so to speak. So all of these teams were affiliated, or the, in this case, the brothels, but they were really kind of like a cell within themselves. What we found was we found similarities in website architecture, naming conventions of files on websites, domain information for these websites was all tied to an individual that we determined lived in South Korea, uh, later identified as Ryan Kim. Ryan provided website services and, as we found out later, money laundering services to this network, along with an individual named uh, Sean Kim and Jeju. But Ryan was located in the Republic of Korea, which presented a hurdle but uh, we were easily able to overcome that later through DS's multinational reach. Right. This is one of the benefits of having agents in almost every country. This case would not have been doable, I think, working in many other agencies, certainly agencies that don't have any international presence. It was, it was crucial. So somebody like Ryan then becomes an actual target, somebody you actually want to put charges on. What other targets did you develop? When we were conceptualizing this case, you know, we didn't have any evidence of coercion in the traditional sense. That's not to say these girls lived good, happy lives. In fact, we found out that many times they were victims of golden handcuffs, I say. Girls with, in some cases, limited education, little to no English language ability, no immigration status, and servicing sometimes dozens of clients a day. And it's tough to get out of the field once they're in it. So I say that because what we ended up kind of conceptualizing the charging framework of this case was, was as a money laundering case which may not be readily apparent why that is, but we did it for a couple of different reasons. For one, you saw the high volume of money coming out of these, you said over a million dollars a year. So where's that money going, right? It's not going into bank accounts, not legitimately anyway. Exactly. So when we identified the website providers, it's important to note the websites were critical in this case because it was really the only way that they existed other than their physical location. Uh, there's right. no business cards or yellow book entries or anything like that besides a website and an advertisements on different companies linking the back to the websites themselves. So the websites okay. really were promoting this activity. And really, that's the consummate bar for what's called a 1956 money laundering conspiracy charge. So that's what we pursued. And indeed, the website providers providing that crucial service became targets of our investigation, as well as the owners of these establishments. 
But there was something else you found about the physical money involved in these cases, right? So we were told from a couple different sources that we developed from the search warrant that there was an old Korean lady that would be the, the bag woman, so to speak, in that she, on a weekly basis, would traverse Manhattan by foot and go around to these establishments, these sex businesses, and collect money in a bag. Almost kind of brings back like the mafia style, like where people are handing out envelopes and, and so on and so forth, and it's money pickup day. So that's what we were told was happening. And uh, we ended up identifying her. Her name was Hoy Ham, and she ended up being uh, Ryan Kim's mom, the website and advertising individual in Korea. She lived about 10 minutes from the New York field office in Palisades wow. Park, New Jersey. And so you spent some time trying to confirm her activity, right? Tracking her down or following her around? How did that go? We did. So we ended up putting a GPS tracker on her car, thinking that maybe she was driving into Manhattan, although that was ended up not being her MO. We wanted to find out how she was getting to Manhattan and find out how exactly she was she was doing this and confirming basically the source's accounts of what was happening. Right. Right. So we ended up getting a GPS tracking order for her cell phone that was hosted by another agency. And as is typical in DS, we had to block a whole lot of individuals off from protection duties uh, in the right. events and some details and, and VIPs rolled into Manhattan. So we ended up having about 15 agents total on standby, blocked off for the entire day to assist Justin and I on this prospective surveillance. Right, because following somebody around can't be done with one or two agents. You need people to kind of leapfrog and be ahead of time. And... You can try to do it with one or two agents, but you're not going to do it well. And the best case would be if you lose the person, the worst case would be that you're identified and that couldn't happen here. Yeah, and you weren't sure which location she was going to hit first or second, things like that. That's right. We found that the most common day, this is according to our sources, that she picked up the money was Wednesdays. So we set up on her house on a Wednesday. We were ready to go and everything was going great until it didn't, just like these things go. We found out that the cell tracking order expired, hosted by this other agency, about eight days prior to our surveillance of her. So we had no idea when she left the house, if she left the house, we were totally going blind and there was nothing quick about the renewal. So what we did was we decided to go to Manhattan to go sit on these locations, or basically surveil these locations that we knew she would prospectively be going. Worth a shot while you had the resources in hand, yeah. Complete shot in the dark, and we, we wanted to, to give it give it a try, and so try we did. And what happened? So they, you know, as they say, truth is stranger than fiction sometimes. This is probably the best story I'll ever have in my law enforcement career. To hear the rest of Chris's story, check out part two, available soon.